Wednesday, you had the chance to meet our new provost, Dr. Stan Gady, as he shared uh, with us thoughts that he had on knowledge and the fact that knowledge is what is there to spur us to action. It has been my joy to work with Stan side by side, day to day, and I have come to know him as a man of integrity, compassion, insight, intuition, good questions, great ideas, an open heart, and an open ear. And when you're with someone like that, it is just joy to think that the student community could get to know him as well through this chapel. And so I'd like to have you welcome Stan Gady back again for our second time. Good morning. Move this a bit. Thank you, Jane, for those kind words. Good to be back with you again this morning. This is my my juice. I have low blood sugar problems around 9.30 in the morning, so if I keel over, somebody rush up here, pour a little juice in, and we'll, we'll be back in business. We, we have three children, as some of you know, and one of them, Nathaniel, or Nate, is a student here at Westmont. Now, generally, this is a good thing. It's a good school. He's getting a good education here. This morning, however, it may not be so good because I want to tell a story involving Nathaniel. <laughs> Actually, two stories. Son, if you're out there, I'm sorry. These are too good to pass up. The first story has no real point, <laughs> except that it gives you some idea of what parenthood is like. And parenthood is like, well, it's like a very humbling experience. When Nathaniel was quite small, he had an interesting approach to asking questions. He was always an inquisitive guy, asking one question after another. But he tended to ask them after he had already found the answer. For example, instead of putting or pointing to an electrical outlet and asking, what's that? He would put his finger into the socket first and then ask, what's that? This made for a rather surprising life for him and for me. I remember one day Nathaniel and I were Christmas shopping at a local mall. Now you need to know that I dislike shopping intensely, mostly because I'm really no good at it. I can never find what I'm looking for, and when I do, it rarely turns out to be what the receiver was looking for. And the whole business of scanning, evaluating, selecting, waiting, and buying just drives me crazy. I always think, I could have written two books by now. <laughs> so the point is, Nathaniel and I, we were shopping, and I was not in a good mood. So to give us a little lift, we decided to get something to eat, which we did, which was good except that Nathaniel was young, and he managed to get a good bit of food over him as well as in him. Like good fathers everywhere, I tried to clean him up quickly, but concluded that it wouldn't work and we needed to find a bathroom to do the, the job well. Well, fortunately, the bathroom was close by, and so we marched over to it and placed ourselves right in front of the sink. Unfortunately, the bathroom sink was equipped with one of those faucets with a button on top where you push the button and water comes out until, until you release the button 
and then it stops. Now, the water is supposed to stay on for a few seconds after you release the button, of course, but it never does. As you well know, what happens is that you, it, in, a, in a few days, the whole system goes kaput. You push the button, water comes out, but you try to put your hands under the water, the water stops. Well, that was the situation here, which would have further frustrated my life, but I'm an adult with a PhD, so I came up with a brilliant solution. I told Nathaniel, look, why don't you push the button while I wash my hands, and I'll push the button while you wash your hands, and we'll have plenty of water. Great idea. Well, Nathaniel certainly did his part. He pushed that button with gusto, and in fact with so much force that the water came out like Niagara Falls, bounced off the bottom of the sink, and landed directly on me. Not just on me, but on my pants. Not just on my pants, but directly on my midsection. You know. Of course, I immediately reached for a paper towel to dry myself off, but quickly discovered there wasn't one. All they had were those hot air hand dryers, which work reasonably well on hands, reasonably well, but they are lousy for people with beards, by the way. You ever think of that one, drying your beard off? And they're not great for much else either. But I was still brilliant with a PhD, and I got an idea. The nozzle on the hot air machine was flexible, I discovered. And after looking around the room to make sure there was no one else there, I redirected the nozzle down to my midsection, hit the button, and began drying my pants. I stood there like this for a few minutes, feeling rather good about my solution, feeling rather good about the hot air as well. When all of a sudden, when all of a sudden a man entered the bathroom, stopped and looked at me with total shock on his face, I'm not sure what he thought I was doing or had done. But I didn't wait to figure out. I quickly backed away, gave the man a little wave, and started to leave. Nathaniel did not, however. He had been watching me and noticed that the nozzle on the hot air machine was rather mobile. And so as I moved out, he moved in, grabbed the nozzle, and before even asking, what's this, he moved the nozzle and redirected the flow of air directly at the man who just entered the bathroom. Now, there's one more thing you need to know about this, this bathroom. Between Nathaniel and the man was one of those cigarette disposal units with sand in it. You know, so you can squish the cigarette butt out in the sand. Now, what this meant was that when Nathaniel redirected the air towards the man, the fellow got blasted not only with air, but with half the sand in Egypt. I mean, the guy looked like Lawrence of Arabia. Well, needless to say, the man didn't hang around long, nor did we. He quickly turned on his heels and shot out of the restroom, no doubt, to call a policeman. I just as quickly grabbed Nathaniel and not only shot out of the bathroom, but out of the mall, onto our way home, all the while giving Nathaniel one of my brilliant lectures about asking before you act and basically sounding like a complete idiot. Parents sound like that a lot, by the way. 
I remember another incident involving Nathaniel, which also involved a lecture, but wasn't nearly so amusing. Nathaniel was about five at the time, and he and I were driving to the next town to pick up pizza, which we typically did on Sunday night. I wasn't in the best mood, not sure why, but clearly a little bit more irritable than normal. It is also the case that Nathaniel, being young, probably made one of those comments that five-year-olds are prone to make, like, Dad, why don't you have any hair in the back of your head? <laughs> or, Dad, why is there such a long shadow under your nose? <laughs> Whatever he said, it irked me. So I did what dads often do. I unleashed my weapon of choice, which happened to be my tongue, and I lectured him. I lectured him on manners. I lectured him on being sensitive to the feelings of others. I threw in the golden rule for good measure and every other theological point I could think of. And by the time I was done, the boy not only knew that he had done wrong, he'd gotten Gady's version of a complete and unabridged moral education. Well, eventually I ran out of steam, zipped my lip, and waited for a response. But nothing happened. I mean, Nathaniel didn't even say a word. He just sat there beside me in the car, looking out the window, silently staring into space. Now, those who know Nathaniel will know that this isn't normal. Even at five, he was a real verbal guy and always willing to carry on a good debate. But not this time. He didn't say a word, not one. At first, I thought, this must be a good sign. Nathaniel's really thinking about what I told him. I must have really gotten through this time. The old man really delivered a knockout blow. Eventually, however, the silence was broken by the calm, clear voice of my son. You know what, Dad, he said with conviction. When I grow up, I think I want to live all by myself on top of a mountain. Wham. With one little comment, my inflated sense of self-righteousness was gone popped with the pin of five-year-old honesty. I'd said everything that needed to be said. I'd delivered tons and tons of truth backed by scripture and driven home with the force of a cattle prod. And what had my truth accomplished? Not changed behavior, not new insight into moral responsibility, not, wow, dad, you're right. I need to be more sensitive to others. From now on, I'll be good. No. It resulted instead in a five-year-old boy who would rather live all alone on the top of a mountain than, than listen to his father. Why was that? Because a dad wasn't practicing what he preached. Because a dad who claimed to know the truth and readily verbalized it didn't live out the truth he said he believed. And therefore, and here's the important point, Therefore, the truth delivered had no meaning. It was, and I was, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. Our focus for these two days in chapel is knowledge, and our guiding text, remember, is Paul's prayer to the Philippians. This is my prayer for you, Christians in Philippi, Christians at Westmont, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that, so that you may be able to discern what is best 
and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. On Wednesday, we looked at the connection between knowledge and love, and we learned one simple thing, that knowledge is something Christians pursue and the very natural consequence of a life touched by the love of God. But there is a danger in all of this as well, as there always is in a fallen world, and I alluded to it last time. Knowledge can easily be disconnected from the love that produced it. And then, well, then all hell breaks loose, quite literally. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge can be used for self-aggrandizement and self-defense, or as it did in my interaction with Nathaniel on our way to get a pizza. Knowledge became a weapon, a sword, which I used to defend myself and defeat my opponent. How can that happen? And why does it happen so frequently? Not just between enemies, where one might expect it, but between brother and sister, roommates and friends, wives and husbands, parent and child. I love Nathaniel more than words could possibly express. I would give up my life for him in a second, no questions asked. And that doesn't make me special. That's the way parents feel, comes with the territory. So tell me then, how could I take the knowledge and wisdom which God has graciously given to me and use it as a weapon against my child to put him down, to lift myself up? How could I do that? Well, the answer, of course, is that I'm a slug. I'm a sinner. But that's not an altogether helpful answer, I think, given the wimpy way in which we tend to think of sin. Too often when we blame something on sin, we either excuse ourselves, you know, the devil made me do it, or we make it sound like dealing with sin is just a matter of acknowledging the concept and getting on with life. But sin is a robust and complex business. It creeps into every part of our lives, our culture, our patterns, our thinking. It is anything but simple, and one suspects that the devil clicks his heels in glee every time we think we've got sin figured out. So, yes, indeed, my sinful nature was the problem that day when Nathaniel and I went to get pizza, but so was the way in which we have come to think about knowledge in this, in this culture in these days. Let me ask you a question. Growing up, how did you think of knowledge? I mean, what was your picture of this word knowledge or this thing knowledge? What was it like to you? I want to make two guesses. First, you probably thought of knowledge as something out there, like an object, which you had to stuff in here, which was something like a pocket. So as you went off to school, you were in the business of finding as many objects as you could and stuffing them into your brain. It wasn't easy. There were too many objects, too little space. So you had to squeeze real hard to get it in, but if you did, you'd have knowledge. The second way you were likely to think of knowledge, and this fits with the first, is you thought of it as something useful, a means to an end. 
Knowledge had value you learned in school because of what you could do with it. So if you wanted to become a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or whatever, you needed to gain knowledge. Of course, becoming a lawyer wasn't your big concern in second grade. You just wanted to make it into third. But that, too, required proficiency, knowledge. What this means, that then, is that as you and I grew up, we thought of knowledge as a thing, something out there which we could acquire and use to, to gain certain objectives. It was a means to an end. Now, on the surface, I realize that this sounds fairly harmless. Indeed, from a teacher's perspective, it's probably a good way to get children to study. But in practice, this way of thinking about knowledge is not only incomplete, I think it's extraordinarily dangerous. Why? Well, if you remember Wednesday's chapel, you already know part of the answer. First, knowledge is never merely useful. It is good, valuable. In fact, it's far more valuable than becoming anything, any particular profession. You will search your Bible in vain for verses which praise particular occupations. But repeatedly, biblical writers praise knowledge and wisdom as far more precious than diamonds and rubies. So first problem, by thinking of knowledge as merely useful, we undermine its real value. But there's a second problem. By thinking of knowledge as a thing, we disconnect it from the whole of life, and particularly, I think, our affections. Remember what made me a student. What was it? It was a changed heart. My heart was transformed by the grace of Christ. And out of a grateful heart came a thirsty mind. That's what Paul says is supposed to happen. And those of us who teach and who want good students would do well to pay as much attention to the condition of the heart as the mind. Third problem. And this is the one that interests me the most right now. By thinking of knowledge as a thing, we don't appreciate the fact that with knowledge comes responsibility. We can't just accumulate information in our minds and let it sit there. We're accountable for what we learn. Sometimes this is obvious. Let's say you're a physician and you are taking a hike in the mountains. You come around a corner and you suddenly discover someone lying on the road. Maybe they fell. Who knows? What do you do? Well, if you're a physician, you take care of them. You have knowledge as a doctor, which you must apply to the situation. No one is there saying you have to do it, but you do it. Why? Because you are responsible for what you know. But increasingly in our world, I think that response is rare. Because most of the time, most of us don't feel responsible for what we learn. The best example I can think of is the nightly news on television. How many of us feel responsible for what we learn on the news? We don't. For one thing, we're not sure we even believe it. But that's a cop-out. Because generally, the nightly news for us is just a piece of information that we process. We don't think of ourselves as being accountable for it in any way, not like the physician who found someone laying on the side of the road. The news is just out there for our interest and entertainment. But the problem, of course, is not just the nightly news, is it? Recently, I was watching a program on television which graphically showed the impact of divorce on children. By the end of it, you knew deep in your bones what children go through 
who have parents who divorce. And it hurt. I was in tears. But within 10 minutes, I was watching another program. It was a comedy in which two parents were both involved in extramarital affairs. And it was funny. And I was laughing. In only 10 minutes, I had been turned from tears to laughter about the same subject. And that happens all the time, doesn't it? We go from one program to the next, from one event to the next, perhaps from one class to the next, and suddenly think or feel completely differently about a topic. Now the question is, what happens to us under such conditions? Well, I'll tell you what I think happens. We become connoisseurs of information, not responsible knowers. We think of knowledge as something we consume for our own appetites. We seek to be stimulated by it, entertained by it, but we bear almost no responsibility for it. In fact, it doesn't even have to make sense, does it? We don't really care as we graze from show to show whether it's consistent or logical or coherent. All we care about is how it makes us feel right now. So what? So what, Gady? What does this have to do with the pizza story and my, about my reaction to Nathaniel when we were going off to get pizza? The question was, remember, given my love for Nathaniel, how could I use my knowledge of moral behavior to clobber him? How could I lecture him on the requirements of love and do it in a non-loving way? Well, you see, the answer is not simply that I'm a rotten person, though that's part of it. The answer is, I have learned to use knowledge, not practice it. It entertains me on a regular basis. I skillfully manipulate it for my own purposes. And most important, I have learned to care not a whit about whether the knowledge I'm consuming is consistent with what I consumed two minutes ago. Why? Because knowledge is not something to be taken seriously, only experienced. Its meaning has been gutted. And consequently, irresponsibility comes easy for us, all of us. We are all inclined to be irresponsible knowers. To study biology and never ask what this means for the way I ought to care for God's good creation. To study economics and never ask what this means for the way I invest my time or resources. To study the Old Testament and never ask how it relates not only to the new, but everything else I'm learning in sociology or math or English or history. Or to bring this home and apply it to my own life. It is easy for me as a dad to know tons and tons about what it means to love my neighbor and then use it unlovingly against my son. I can do that in a flash. And so can you. But that's not the end of the story. Something else happened on that day when Nathaniel and I went off to get pizza. And you need to hear that as well. You'll recall that after I berated Nathaniel for being insensitive, first I got silence, and then I got, I think when I grow up, I'm going to live all by myself on top of a mountain. Well, I'm dense but not so dense that the real meaning of that comment didn't sink in. And I remember sitting there in the driver's seat, driving along and thinking, what have I done? What have I done? 
putting distance between us. I'm alienating someone I love as much as anyone in the whole world. Driving him to a mountaintop when all I want to do is be by his side in the valley. And then, then Nathaniel did something which I can only assume, assume was inspired. He looked at me like he'd read my mind, grinned sort of sheepishly, crawled over the seat, and gave me a huge hug. And then, best of all, best of all, he just sat there by my side for the rest of the trip. What happened? What happened on that day? Well, a man, a father, who was puffed up, had consumed much knowledge so that he could verbalize it to his advantage, but without understanding. While another man, a boy, had learned very little, but understood what he had learned. And so his knowledge bore fruit. In the words of Paul, his knowledge produced righteousness. And on that day, the son was the father, and the father his grateful student. What are we about at Westmont? We're about the pursuit of truth, of understanding. We pursue it out of a grateful heart because we can do no other. That's what we learned on Wednesday. We ought to be eager scholars, knowing that what God wants of us more than anything is for us, for our love to grow deep, deep in knowledge and insight and understanding. But that's not the end of the story. With knowledge comes a choice. Two paths open up to us who pursue it. One path made easy by our culture is the path of irresponsibility. Going down that path, you will use your knowledge to be entertained, to impress others, and perhaps even to gain a great reputation. But you will also use it to destroy those you love sitting right next to you in a car while going to get pizza. And in the end, you will destroy yourself, guaranteed. Read Ecclesiastes. The other path is the only path open to those of us whose knowledge is rooted in the love of Christ. It is very simply to live the truth we learn, to practice what we preach, to be responsible knowers. If we did that, just those of us here at Westmont, we could change the world, I think. I know you think I'm exaggerating, but I don't think so. Think of what a gifted community of people this is. Think of what would happen in the classroom, in the residence halls, on the athletic fields, in the library, in the town of Santa Barbara. If we lived out the truth, we say we believe. I think it would be dynamite. And it would be an explosion heard round the world because it would not stop here. It would carry with you the rest of your life, transforming your relationships, your homes, your neighborhoods, your vocation, your church, your world. Look what Jesus did with 12 disciples who were not exactly the cream of the crop when they went to school on him. What could he do with 1,200 of us Many of us are the cream of the crop and who are rooted in him. That's the question of the hour. 
and all heaven waits our answer. Let us pray. Father, we confess that we are sitting here with mixed emotions right now. This is not a new idea. We have known for a long time that our love ought to grow in knowledge and our knowledge ought to produce fruit. But we also know that this is hard. Hard because of the age in which we live. Hard because of the inclinations of our hearts. And we can all, every one of us, list a whole string of failures when it comes to living the truth we say we believe. But we can all do something else as well this morning. We can all, every one of us, remember your faithfulness in the midst of our failures. Faithfulness in the person of Christ. Faithfulness in the provision of your word. Faithfulness through the work of your spirit who daily and even now, teaches and convicts and draws us to you. Help us now to listen, that our hearts might know absolutely the love of Christ, that our love might grow unceasingly in knowledge and depth of insight, and that we might bear fruit, living the truth we believe, practicing what we preach, doing what is right. Because we are great, no, because you are great, and we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.